You're listening to This Nazarene Life, stories of young Nazarene clergy and their role models. TNL is proud to announce yet another young clergy meetup, this one in Massachusetts, October 8th from 10 to 3. For more information on this and other meetups, visit the events page of our website at thisnazlife.com. Today's role model episode features Reverend Bruce Barnard. Reverend Bruce is a pastor in Manhattan, New York City, and is currently doing doctoral work at George Fox under Leonard Sweet. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Britt Bullerjack, and I'm here with my guest, Bruce Barnard. Bruce is a pastor in Manhattan, New York City, called Sundays at 6. Say hello, Bruce. Hello, Bruce. So first, I, I really wanted to ask you about how you ended up in the Church of the Nazarene, if you could kind of tell us that story. Um, yeah, sure. The, I was born into the Church of the Nazarene. Um, my grandparents were members of Glendale First Church of the Nazarene and uh, just outside of Los Angeles. And um, my my parents were in that church when I was born. I like to say that um, I was Nazarene before I was born because I, I think on the way home from the hospital, if they could have, they would have stopped and had me uh, dedicated that morning. Um, my dad was uh, a youth pastor and a music minister on the Southern California District became one of the first in the denomination to be ordained, um, not as a preaching pastor, but as, a, as an associate. And um, so I was sort of born into that. And in 1966, we moved from Southern California to uh, the desert heat of Bethany, Oklahoma, and uh, arrived on a day in August with, it was, I think, 112 degrees or something. Uh, my sister and I thought, what, what, where did our parents take us? Why are we even here? We stayed in Snowbarger Hall on the campus of uh, what was then Bethany Nazarene College with mom and pop Etter, um, who hosted us until we could buy a house. And um, I've been a Nazarene, I've been a Nazarene tense. There, there wasn't any uh, epiphany uh, moment where we discovered the Church of the Nazarene was better than anything else. We just didn't know anything else. And so, that that was kind of it when it was time to to uh, we grew up in Bethany and uh, attended Bethany First Church all those years. There was a brief moment when we were at Lakeview Park Church of the Nazarene, um, right up until there was a uh, kind of an ugly church split, and then we went back to Bethany. But my dad was on uh, faculty at at BNC uh, in the religion department, dean of students, and then. We went to, after I graduated from BNC, he moved to Boston to Eastern Nazarene College and uh, kind of followed. I didn't have a job, didn't have a place to live here, so I uh, went there, uh, did my graduate work there uh, at Boston University, and then uh, married a, another third-generation Nazarene uh, woman from Ohio who was in Boston at the time. Our kids were born. We moved to Maine. Uh, part of the Nazarene Church, and really have, have just never left it. Can you tell us more about your call to be a pastor and how you ended up being a pastor? Sure. I had absolutely zero interest in being a pastor or um, being 
being trained to be a pastor, I think there was a point in college when I felt God was calling me to the ministry, um, may have sent an application to seminary, but at some point made the decision to go towards Boston and a master's in education, kind of figuring that you know I could just be I could be a good layman in the church and and help um, do kingdom work that way. And then when we moved to Maine, I, I went to work for a college in Maine, Colby College. I was there for just shy of twenty years. A couple of years before the end of it. I was doing a lot of traveling and speaking in, in college administration conferences and was on my way to speak in upstate New York um, when, I, when I started sensing that God was having a conversation with me about all of the things I was doing in my life, uh, city councilor, um, national college store, board of trustees, I'd been on the board of trustees at Eastern Nazarene College. Um, all of the speaking and traveling, um, and, and it, this question from God that just kept asking me in the car. And, and when I say asking, I don't, I don't, I don't often say I heard the Lord say to me. Um, but this was this was a moment when you actually kind of turn around in the car and go, you know, did, did a hitchhiker get in here when I wasn't looking? There's there's a voice in the back seat, and God kept asking me. Uh, if I was willing to give up what all of those things that I was doing that that gave me a sense of self worth, uh, self importance, um, ego kind of things, uh, when you would walk in a room of a thousand people and be the invited guest speaker, was I willing to just kind of give those things up? And my question back to God, which which we often do and probably shouldn't, but we do, was why. You know, if I'm willing, God, why? What's the why behind behind the ask? Um, and and I never really got it until uh, finally, just between Massachusetts and New York, as I was passing through some toll booths, I had said, "Okay, God, if if you want me to give it all up, I will. I don't really understand why, but I will." And um, in the next breath. God asked me if I would take up the call to ministry. He tried to give me in college, but I wasn't paying attention. So that was not on my short list of reasons that I thought I was being asked to give up all those things. Um, wasn't sure I, how I felt about it. When my wife and I were dating, I remembered her telling me the only thing she knew she wasn't ever going to do was marry a pastor. So um, I had this this feeling going home that the conversation might might be interesting. So on the way home, I stopped and talked to my pastor. I said, you know, I told him the story. I said, I, I don't know really what to do with this. Um, and he said, I've been sensing for about a year that God was going to call you to the ministry, but I didn't tell you about it because I didn't want to influence it. I'm like, yeah, well, that's that's all good and well. That's what pastors say when they want to be right about something that happened for the past year. Um, so, so you can't see Brittany laughing, but she's laughing at my jokes, which is good. So, so I went home and uh, it was a Wednesday night and our kids had gone to youth group with my in-laws and Amy was home and I, she goes, how was your trip? And I told her, and I, so I started telling her this same story that, you know, at those toll booths where I said, I would, I would give all that up. God said, how do you feel about going into the ministry? And, um, I kid you not, Amy said to me, for about a year, I knew this was coming. 
I didn't know what it was, but I knew God was going to do something different in our lives. And she had left a career in computer technology to become a public school teacher, not really knowing why, but but in hindsight realizing that you know teachers can move anywhere that pastors are called. So um, that began my my journey of trying to figure out what that meant to be a pastor in the church in the Nazarene. I, I sent transcripts to our district uh, to inquire about a district license. <clears throat> I was not a religion major in college, but because at Bethany they had required chapel attendance, and when you failed chapel, you got a failing, you got an F instead of a passing P. You had to take extra religion classes. So the 10 semesters, yes, 10, that I was at Bethany, I failed every semester of chapel which meant by default I was a religion minor. And funny thing, it turned out that um, 10 of the 24 credits that I needed for ordination were granted from those classes that I had to take when I was at Bethany. And for anybody listening who thinks that's the route to go, please don't do that. Um, that, that I don't advise it. But, but again, you know, God's kind of redemption of our disobedience in life. So, so I started down the path and um, figured probably in Maine, there's about 40-something churches uh, where we were living at the time. A bunch of them didn't have pastors. I thought, well, maybe I'm going to stay in my job at the college and, you know, pastor one of these little country churches with, with 10 gray-haired ladies on Sunday morning, which I love. I love seniors, so it was, would have been a perfect fit. But Amy always felt God was going to do something different. Uh, and and she has she has really been the intuitive one in our relationship, and she always has a sense for these things. And I didn't believe her then; um, I do now, but I didn't then. So uh, I was trying to get a feel for what a pastoral resume should should be, given my background, which was all business and education. And I sent one to the Metro New York District DS, who was a friend of my dad's, and. I uh, said, could you just look this over and give me some tips on how to write a, you know, a clergy resume? And he said, sure. And a couple months went by, maybe six weeks or so, and he called me up and he said, hey, I just want to, I want to talk to you about this. Um, tell me your story. And so I told him very much that story of, of driving to New York and, and God's call. And um, he said, well, I've, I've got a church here in New York I'd love to give your resume to. And I said, you mean you're going to tell me how to fix it and then you're going to send it? He goes, no, your resume's fine. I just wanted to hear your, your story before I sent it off to them. So um, he sent our resume to a kind of a church in uh, about an hour outside of Manhattan in a bedroom community of the city. And they called us, uh, did a phone interview, and then um, I was invited out to do an interview with the board and the DS. Um, and they said, we'd like you to come on this particular weekend and we'll interview in the morning. And, and if we like you, we want to recommend you to the church. We'll, we'd like you to stay and preach on Sunday. But if we don't like you, then you don't have to preach on Sunday. So um, we, we came out and did the interview and uh, they, they decided to recommend us and asked us to stay and preach and, and, and on Sunday. So Sunday morning meeting all kinds of people in the church. I met this this uh, older gentleman who's passed away now, and 
he, he every time I saw him, he was one of those old grandpa types that had a different joke. He never repeated the same joke twice. They were never really funny, but you laughed every time. And he told he he, he that's how our relationship began. And he asked me how we drove to this from Maine to New York for this interview. And I told him. And he said, don't go home that way. And he gave me a different route to go back. His son was a doctor in Maine, and, and he was you know, giving me his best advice on how to drive back to Maine. The way he described it, that we should go, was, was a, a way that nobody would ever really go. It, it was not the shortest route. Um, it was not the least expensive route. had a lot of tolls. But, but I had this quandary because because I really didn't want to go that way. So I either had to tell him, no, that's a dumb way to go, which didn't seem to be smart because he would be voting on me in a couple weeks, or I had to lie to him and say, well, we would do it and then not do it, and that didn't seem like a very good way to start a pastoral relationship. So I said, okay, and we and, and so we drove home that way. So we drove up the, the New York through. I know your listeners won't know these routes, but we drove up the New York Thruway, um, and got on the New York um, Turnpike, and it's about six o'clock on a Sunday night. We knew we were going to get voted on. We knew we would be extended a call, and um, we're driving across the the through the Turnpike, heading into um, Massachusetts. When I look over, and there are those toll booths that I'd been at two years earlier, the same toll booths, and it hit me. Um, and I, you know, I can't even tell the story without without being emotional about. It, but it hit me that God was drawing this circle in my life, and this was the affirmation that we were supposed to uh, come to Warwick, New York. And I, I nudged Amy and told her, and I said, "Those are the tollbooths where this thing started." And uh, we got a vote and a call. We came to Warwick. We were in Warwick about. Um, just shy of seven years and really felt God um, calling us to do um, something different. Um, and our DS invited us into Manhattan to plant a house church and to um, lead, lead church planting um, specifically for the borough of Manhattan. Um, and so we have now two house churches and a third one starting in Harlem in the fall. And uh, so that's where we're at. I know that you're working on your PhD, and I feel like you have a lot of interesting things that have kind of come out of that. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the conversations that are or are not happening maybe in the Church of the Nazarene regarding LGBT issues. I'm um, sure. Uh, so if your folks are still listening after that question, um, let's see where this conversation goes. Um, I, when when I entered, I'm, I'm in a. It's not a PhD. It's a doctorate of ministry. Um, we like to say that you know we're better than PhDs, but they don't really like that. So I'm at George Fox Evangelical Seminary, and I intended when I was invited into the program with our lead mentor Lynn Sweet, I, I really intended to study house church, uh, house the preaching models that are required now in house church movements. And it was actually at the week, uh, our first meeting on the campus, that I began to feel like, um, though I'm interested in that, and though I think there's a lot to be said and uh, a lot of conversations around that, I really felt like 
what I really wanted to do, if if the university would let me, the seminary, was look at the tension um, that exists between the LGBT community and the church, particularly non-affirming churches like the, the Church of the Nazarene. Uh, and I don't say that negatively or pejoratively. It's just that they, they, that's who we are. Um, that's our identity. And and the tension that clergy, particularly in the church, have to feel as they try and navigate what it means to be in a tradition, uh, in a tribe that is non-affirming, and quite honestly and candidly uses pretty harsh language as we describe um, people in the LGBT community. And so, um, of course, I'm at an evangelical seminary, so I I talked with the with the dean, uh, the, the director of the program, and my dissertation advisor, and said, um, "Could I shift and do this topic?" And um, they said, "Absolutely." And I said, "How does that fit within what what the goals of the university are?" And you know, what if what if through the research uh, I come to some conclusions and ideas that are um, seem to be at odds with with a, a Quaker seminary. And they said, you don't have to convince us that you're right and we're wrong. What you have to convince us of in your research and, and writing is that um, what you're, where you're headed and what you're proposing is believable and possible. And so since it is completely believable and possible that there is tension, that clergy feel being in non-affirming traditions, whether they're fully affirming, whether they're they're just trying to navigate a third way through uh, the morass, there's still tension in in clergy um, in general. Don't know what to do with it now. Now, when I say in general, what I'm what I'm really doing is um, creating sort of this this bell curve model where. Um, the vast majority of clergy and laity and people in our congregations um, fall somewhere in in sort of the middle spectrum of a bell curve. Way out on one end would be clergy, laity, uh, people in the church who believe that that being being gay is completely one hundred percent a choice. That there's there's no biblical base for it. There's no way God would create you that way. And that if you just pray hard enough and go to the altar enough and uh, get baptized and rebaptized and rebaptized enough, then eventually that will get um, cleansed of your soul and you can get on with a happy heterosexual lifestyle. Yeah. And then the, on the other end of the spectrum are those that believe that um, being gay um in, in acting out of out of your identity and your orientation is not at all sinful and and should um, not be at all um, viewed negatively by the church and would support um, same-sex marriage um, fully and abundantly. And so what tends to happen is what we're seeing at least right now in social media is it's the people at way at the ends of the spectrums who are doing all the fighting and have the most the most voice in this debate. It's the rest of us who are somewhere in the middle along the spectrum who are trying to find our way through it, um, especially clergy, 
and um, they don't have resources to help them and their leaders discuss topics in a in a um, new and fresh way, and 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 um, everybody in their congregation generally is is in the same boat. So what what I'm hoping to do is produce a series of videos um, at the conclusion of my research that are are uh, working titled "You're Losing Us," and um, there'll be three of them, and each one is being told from the perspective of either um, an LGB person or individual, a transgender person or individual, and then Christian parents of gay kids. Those are the three groups that I'm seeing in the research that are most hurt um, by, by the actions of the church. And so they're, they're, they have a voice, and what we want to do is produce a series of videos that pastors can use with their leaders, um, church board, small groups, as conversation starters. Um, they're not answers. Um, they're not things that if we follow these seven steps, we'll somehow become an affirming uh, congregation. But, but we have to do something different. We're, we're not just losing gay people in this fight. It's not just that we're, we're, we're losing somebody who identifies lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender. We're losing large groups of people around them. And clergy that are um, in ministry today were not prepared. Um, they were not trained. They weren't given the, the adequate uh, uh, kinds of programs and coursework, either through college, seminary, Bible college, online course of study. Um, they just don't know what to do. So, so for example, um, uh, I'm, I'm, I spoke just this week with a couple uh, in, in a Nazarene church whose daughter uh, came out to them as lesbian, is in a relationship, and in hopes that her parents would I embrace not only her but, but her partner. The mom has said to me, she's it's not anything she she thought she would do but she's been put in a position where her choice is either to love and embrace her daughter or or to reject her daughter um, using scripture and the church as her basis for rejection she feels those are her only two choices so she's chosen to love and embrace her daughter and her partner her husband on the other hand has chosen to to land um, on that other end of the spectrum which is you know this is what the bible says it's a sin um, and and we're not going to have that in our house so now all of a sudden you have this couple who needs pastoral counseling sitting down with their pastor wherever this might be and their pastor gets us you know one perspective the other perspective and how is that pastor then supposed to help them navigate not only their relationship parent-child but how how are they to to navigate their marital relationship how are they to get through the stress of this on their marriage and those are the practices of being in ministry today those are the kinds of things that are coming upon our ministers um, some of which have been around forever some of which have been around uh, for only a few years and we've we've got to find a, a way to do this thing better 
do you have any advice or ideas about what that will be, what that might look like to to do this thing better as a denomination? <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I think I, I think I think there's going to have to be a tipping point at which those numbers of people in the middle outweigh the numbers at the end, at the edges. And it's not unprecedented. Um, I, I did research this year on how the Church of the Nazarene navigated the issue of divorce. Um, up until 19, early 1990s, um, clergy who divorced, um, even, if, even if the clergy ordained elder didn't initiate the divorce, clergy who, who went through divorce had a really challenging time of uh, coming back into the ministry. And, and that's, you know, you're talking you know, 20 years ago. That's not that long ago. And so there was a commission formed in the 90s to look at the issue of the divorce and um, in the Church of Nazarene. They brought a resolution to the 1993 General Assembly to basically create, uh, without getting into all the details of it, but they basically created uh, a redemptive hermeneutic of uh, looking at divorce in the church. And they said, if, if the gospel is about redemption, then the church has to be about redemption. And we've got to, f- to figure this way out. Um, and so uh, over the years, they've, they, we've navigated that. We, we, uh, we find exceptions even to that where uh, we haven't broken, broken ground yet. Um, there's there's uh, one now where um, a person that, that uh, filed uh, their credentials voluntarily uh, in the Church of the Nazarene, generally speaking, you can you can surrender your credentials voluntarily if there's no more elapsed, and you can request those back when when you're active in ministry again. But the only condition is if a divorce happens during that, it requires um, the district that you surrendered on, the district superintendent to to affirm it. It requires the board of ministry to affirm it. It requires the district advisory board to affirm it. It requires the jurisdictional general superintendent and the BGS to approve it, and then it has to be voted on at district assembly. It's a motion in the um, to restore the credentials. So, so we have this process through which, if divorce happens while your credentials are surrendered, um, it's it's a much more arduous task to get them back. Now, layer upon that. Um, Let's say hypothetically, uh, an ordained clergy uh, member surrenders their credentials, um, transitions gender, um, is now legally in a same-sex, what we would call a same-sex marriage, and gets a divorce because being in a same-sex marriage isn't what they want. Now that we have no, there's really no easy path that you see that person getting their credential back Mm -hmm. and because their credential is always issued for ordination um, and returned in the name that you originated it with see it it would come back in in the previous name so we have all kinds of these things twisted around divorce that um, our general uh, secretary is going to have to wrestle with as um, over over the years, these kinds of things. But if we stick with a redemptive hermeneutic of divorce, 
then I think we can navigate those things well. I think that's what we're going to have to do with LGB. Um, in fact, if, if you look at how the church evolved, if I can use the word evolve um, on this podcast, um, <laughs> if you look at how the church evolved on the issue of divorce, I think that's the path that I see us um, being able to learn best from in the LGB conversations. And it's not that it's in, in the Church of the Nazarene, I'm not, I'm not saying the Church of the Nazarene is ever going to be fully welcoming and affirming, but there, if there's a path towards welcoming and hospitable in this, this issue, then I think we need, to, we, we need to find that. And I think we have a, a, a pattern in front of us that may help those of us who align in the middle of this conversation somewhere um, see our way through. Um, what gives you hope for the future of the Church of the Nazarene? What, what keeps you here? Well, part of what keeps me here is I think I'm too old to go anywhere else. Um, all, I turned 57 uh, this year. Um, I was ordained late in life. But then again, I chose this season of my life um, to go and get a, a, a doctorate. So I, I don't know. Who knows? Um, a few years ago, when, when the church was exploding because one of our one of our pastors prayed at the Democratic National Convention when they um, renominated Barack Obama. He and I created a Facebook page we called Hopeful Nazarenes. Now, the interesting thing is nothing much happens there anymore, so you can go look for Hopeful Nazarenes, but it's don't go with a lot of hope that there's you know daily <clears throat> or even weekly conversations going on. But I think what what uh, Gabe and I talked about, Gabriel Saguero was the pastor, and I talked about at the time was, if we don't ha- if we don't find hope, then we're relegating ourselves to being irrelevant and inconsequential, and we might as well leave. Um, since then, I've just I've just maintained this attitude that even if in even if in in the individual moments things seem hopeless or I don't see uh, a hopeful way to navigate through some of the issues the church has to navigate through. And there's a lot of them. I, you know, you think about the last couple of years where our Nazarene institutions have um, fired tenure faculty for what, you know, quite a few of us think are not really valid reasons. Um, or, or even the movement now at some of our schools to create these faculty codes that they faculty are going to be forced to sign. Uh, covenants. Um, I think. I think even in the midst of all of that, what what gives me hope is that if if we don't figure out how to pass along the legacy that we've been given from um, the great the great men and women who have led our church, this next generation coming along, if they don't see hope in us, if they don't see us being hopeful. Um, they're going to have even less reason to be hopeful, and it and at that point, um, the Church of the Nazarene becomes, as Gabe said, irrelevant and inconsequential, and that doesn't seem to be good for the kingdom. It doesn't seem to be good for the individuals who have literally poured sweat and blood and tears into into our denomination. It's a tough question when we're living in 
um, not only post-Christian but post-denominational times. And and I don't know that I have all the answers, but for me, I kind of hold to that that idea that if there is a redemptive spirit to the gospel, then there has to be a redemptive spirit to our church. And that, to me, that means that even if we don't see it today, we'll discover it eventually. And as we discover those things, um, we build hope in, in the generation, my generation, generation after me, and the generation after that. There's some, there's some great millennials coming along um, who, who see things differently, who have a vision for where the church can be, like the creator of this podcast, um, and her husband, who are totally awesome. Um, and I think, I, I think the more those of us who are um, gracefully aging are willing to step aside and give up our right to power and privilege and influence, and we give it over to this, this next generation, I think hope will return. Um, I, I really do. I'm, that, that keeps me connected to the Church of the Nazarene, that I see in the eyes and the spirit of the, the younger generation behind me um, feeling good about the church, and, and if they feel good about it, then I have to, I have to feel good about it. I really appreciate your time. I feel like you have a lot to contribute. You're doing a lot to facilitate the conversations happening in the denomination right now, and I really appreciate your work along those lines. So thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. And you can find us at Mission New York on Facebook, um, PastorBruce59 at gmail.com. And if you ever want to come plant a church in Manhattan, um, hit me up because we need more people to move to Manhattan. <laughs>